0: Hello, everyone. My name is Marissa Mormon, and I'm one of the editors of the Journal of African History. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Laura Phillips, who is a senior lecturer in history at Northwest University at the Mahikang campus in South Africa. Dr. Phillips has just published an article in the Journal of African History in issue 63.1. And I'm going to ask her to tell us the title of the article and say a little bit about its argument. Welcome, Laura.
1: Great, thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Um, so, the article is uh, titled Below the Land Deals The Making of Mineral Property in Champachlele, South Africa, um, 1880 to 1994. Um, and what I'm doing in, in this article, um, the broad argument or the broad story that I'm trying to explore is how it is that minerals in general, but platinum in particular, becomes commodified and becomes a, for, a form of property. Um, and there is a I I guess fairly straightforward kind of answer that one could offer to to the question And perhaps it's a story that looks at how law develops how uh, roman dutch law for example was developed in south africa and that uh, severed land from 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 mineral rights but what i do in the articles to say that that uh answer to the question about the commodification of platinum is um uh a bit dull, it leaves out a lot of really significant developments um, and uh, elements to the story. And what it leaves out in particular, what it flattens in particular, I think, um, is the way that uh, the making of platinum as a form of property was very contested. Um, it was really contingent and it relied very heavily on a range of uh, very local, very specific kind of uh, dynamics that were playing out on the ground in this area, Kham Patlele, um, which is in the northern, central northern part um, of the country. Um, and so the way that I then kind of uh, the way that the article unfolds is really exploring how uh, land dispossession, the making of political authority, uh, all contribute to uh, the commodification and the creation of uh, platinum as a as a form of property in um, in Khambelele, uh region, um, and I draw very. Heavily on uh, the work of a range of uh, scholars who've spoken and thought in, gr- in great detail about uh, making of property in colonial contexts and post colonial uh, contexts as well, in particular, the work of um, Thomas Secor and uh, Christian Lund. Um, and my kind of intervention, they, they offer a very useful way, I think, about uh, examining the relationship between property and uh, authority. Um, I've pulled out a particular quote from their, um, from their writing that I really kind of much of the argument depends on. And that is the process of recognition of claims as property simultaneously works to imbue the institution that provides such recognition, recognition with the recognition of its authority to do so. So really thinking about how property and authority are co-constitutive. That's that's uh, very much an insight I'm, I'm using uh, to develop my argument. But my kind of intervention is to say, well, what is it that creates this co-constitutive relationship? What kind of is the catalyst to bring these two different um, processes of property and poli- and political authority into conversation with one another, into this co-constitutive relationship? And what my article shows is capital and the interest of capital um, um, and their desire to... Um, identify, categorize, um, minerals is really significant in bringing these two elements together.
0: Yeah. Thank you. It's such a fascinating article. And I think for anybody who pays attention to to South Africa in general, obviously platinum's been in the news, <laughs> um, in the past many years. Um, I think many of us know about the Marikana massacre and, and lawnman, but it's, it, it's interesting to see this deeper and longer history. And of course, I think many of us as historians of the continent are much more familiar with the relationship between gold and diamonds and capital. Um, and I'm wondering, is there something particular about platinum, um, that it that tells us a different story than than that one with which we're more familiar.
1: Yeah, and um, there's kind of two ways to answer the question. The one is what's specific to platinum and one and then the other is about what's specific to platinum and khambathlele. Yeah. Um, And uh, what is specific to platinum, particularly in the South African context compared to gold, um, is that gold um, and diamonds, even the story before gold, really, um, gold is primarily found on land that has already been designated, um, where an enormous process of dispossession has already been. Uh, kind of played out, and the land has already been designated as white-owned land. And so when gold is um, commodified and and turned into forms of property, um, the racial dynamics uh, are are really significant, but they've already played out. So it's quite an easy, well, relatively easy and simple process to uh, turn gold into private rights um, because it is on land that is quite easy to delineate as, as, as private property. Uh, platinum is different in South Africa because at the point at which the platinum market booms, um, much of the land uh, under which platinum falls has already been designated as uh, what were first called native reserves and then later um, under apartheid, the Bandistans or the homelands um, created by the apartheid state to kind of concretize segregation and uh Facilitate kind of a divide and rule policy. So, this is land that is settled on by uh, black communities, African communities under chiefly authority for the most part. And so, the process in which um, uh, that platinum is then uh, accessed and uh, made into a form of property that can be kind of controlled and mined by by big capital is very different to them what happens under gold because of the political dynamics that are and the nature of uh, property regimes in these areas of the, of, of the bantustans. um and then, the, so that's kind of the broad difference between the story of platinum and, and gold and how property gets formed in those two instances. But what I think is particular to the Kham story, and this is really how my argument that I was uh, referring to earlier came into view, was by comparing it to the far better known story of platinum in South Africa, which is the King story, which is um, about uh, it, the platinum. It, there's kind of um, quite a, Large parts of the north and northwestern parts of the country, where there are platinum deposits, Chambatlele um, is in the central eastern part of the country. Of the Bafokeng are in the northwest part of the country, um, and uh, the Bafokeng land, um, what fell under a different homeland authority, authority to that which the Chambatlele land fell under. Bafokeng fell under and uh, The chief minister there was um, Lucas Mangope, um, and there was a sustained and very um, uh, long-standing uh, interest by uh, mining companies from about the 1960s in Bafuking land, on, in Bafuking and on platinum underneath Bafuking land in Putizwana. Um But in Kham for reasons that are quite um, geological, in fact, for the most part, and uh, of course also political, but the geology of uh, of the region around Chambal is really very significant to the story. Mining companies come in and out. Um, they try, they make an effort to get access to the platinum. It works, it doesn't work, and and they and then they withdraw. Um, and that kind of um, distinction between how involved and how invested mining companies are in Buffalo King compared to how invested they are in Khambelele produces, what I argue, very different kinds of results with very different kinds of forms of property and types of contestation that happen in the making of um, platinum as property. And that's very distinctive, I think, um, to to the story. So it's very much by taking what is different from the well-known story that we can see the broader processes that are at play here.
0: Very interesting. I know you describe a very kind of multi-layered and contingent uh, set of processes, right, basically over the course of a se- more than a century. Could you say a little bit about the kinds of sources you're using to write this history?
1: Yeah, sure. Um So I used kind of the sources that many historians use with uh, many of the kind of classic dynamics, limitations, but also potentials that they have um, around um, oral history in particular. I used a lot of archival material that came from the National Archives and uh, the Lepoa Archives, which is the homeland that the Khambelele fell in. And private archives um, as well. But what I think is perhaps particularly interesting and uh, to to the kind of source material I was using um, is that, well, when I was doing this research, I was spending um, quite a lot of time in the Khamberle area around 2017, 18, and a bit in 2019, and when I was there, uh, another mining company was trying to get access uh, to, uh, to to minerals minerals in the region and um, access, uh, there was very violent, incredibly tense politics around their attempt to do so, um, intertwined with and related to um, uh, contestations around the chieftaincy. And so while I was uh, doing my research, almost all the questions I was asking about kind of quite old historical processes the backdrop to the answers I was getting was this incredibly tense and as I say violent there were assassinations happening there were court cases that were happening and so very much kind of many of the questions I was asking um and access to the private archives that I had was always kind of explained to me in terms of the contemporary politics however I um had first got interested, in fact, in Leboa when I was many years before when I was doing work for the late Phil Bonner, uh, a very prominent historian in South Africa in Southern African history. And Phil um, had done a lot of work in Khampak as well, um, but in an earlier time, about 2011, 2012, I think. Um, where uh, there wasn't uh, as urgent a set of uh, demands of access to minerals as there was when I was doing uh, my work. And partially because I think Fuller uh, was a very you know a, a sharp, sharp mind, but also because I think the other part that made him such a great historian was he was charming and he was able to kind of uh, speak to get access to sources that a lot of people weren't able to get access to he put together um, an almost completed draft of a paper on the history of Khan Betlele and so it was really by kind of triangulating some of the interviews and the material that I was getting in 2018 2019 time that was as I say really shaped by the politics of the time with some of the material that Phil had managed to get some years earlier which was um, less kind of yeah the conversations he was having with people was less uh shaped by the contemporary politics that i was able to put together this this story
0: that's really uh an amazing and lucky uh set of situations and sources to be able to have to compare that because i know you know i think we're always obsessed right with trying to disentangle <laughs> the present from the past but also think about the ways in which they're connected and so to be able to have somebody's somebody else's materials um Professor Bonner is no less, right, is is probably really quite an amazing um, boon. Could you say a little bit about what you think readers from um, and scholars from other regions of the African continent might find of use in this article? What might be helpful to them?
1: Yeah, Um yeah. well, yeah, as I say, kind of scholars um, who've really engaged a lot with questions of property in the colonial, post-colonial, post-colonial context, not only, in fact, in Africa, but elsewhere as well in the world, their writing has really, really shaped um, how I think about uh, the story of minerals and property in Necham Um And um, I, I drew on, as I said, a lot of the work of. have um, Sikor and Lund. Um, but uh, the work of people like Pauline Peters, Sarah Berry have also been very influential. Um, and what I think might, uh, so in addition to some of the insights that came out of trying to figure out how it is that property and political authority uh enter this co-constitutive relationship through the interests of capital another insight that i think is useful for scholars um, outside of the particular context of south africa is um to add some of uh what i've been doing um to Conversations about the making of property that take into consideration not only the interests of um, Western powers or uh, European capital or American capital, um, but also look at how uh, it is shaped from the ground up. And in particular, I'm thinking of... uh, the work of Gabrielle Hecht, which was uh, also incredibly influential in uh, thinking about uh, the making of minerals and her interest in nuclearity or the making of uh, uranium as nuclear. Um, I want to add to the kind of story that she's telling about uh, the interest of how, how, how uh, minerals get their kind of their features that are of interest on a, on a global market. I want to add to that story, the specifics of how what happens on the ground shapes uh, how, how how they get those particular particular features. Yeah.
0: Really wonderful. Um, and I just want to ask you then finally, um, is this part of a larger project? Um and what are you working on now?
1: Um so the answer is um sort of yes, but also sort of no. <laughs> um, so uh, as I said, part of my interest in Chambaslele came from this older piece of work that I've been doing for Fulbano much earlier. But um, I really kind of re-engaged with uh, Chambaslele's story when I was uh, doing my PhD, um, which I, uh, I finished two years ago. So I'm still very much in that in that headspace. Publishing out of it, and my PhD um, looked at questions of class formation um, and accumulation in late apartheid South Africa in the early post-apartheid period. And I, um, I used the case study of Leboa, this uh, homeland, this Bantustan, to really ask these ask these questions. Mm-hmm. And Khampaslele is um, very close to the capital of the former Leboa, Um in fact, Leboa Homo, the, the capital of this old homeland, was created all out of land that the Champatlele chieftaincy had uh, donated to the Leboa government. Um, and so when I was, uh, doing interviews for my PhD project on class formation, I was asking questions about how people got access to education. I was asking questions about land as well. Um, but it was really, uh, because as I say, there were mining companies were coming in and out and in and out of Khamberkalele. There wasn't like a clear, um, line that I could draw between mining capital and class formation in the area. But when I was there, as I said, there were these enormously um, dramatic politics that were playing out um, about about these very contemporary, what seemed to be very contemporary issues. Um, and so, but I was doing these interviews that were asking people to reflect back on a much a much older history. And so, though this work didn't directly fall into uh, what I was writing about for my PhD, it felt like a piece of research that I'd kind of been. Following in the, the the contemporary version of it um, but wasn't directly relating it to uh, to the broader question of class formation and, and accumulation and so it's kind of a it's an offcut I guess in some ways from from, from my phd PhD research um, on the region and class formation there
0: so do you think you'll go back to it at all do you imagine other projects coming out of it or is it really is a kind of discrete always interesting to think about you know how we have the decisions we make about research and
1: yeah. Well, absolutely, in fact. Um, so there's there's a linked project and I think that um this is kind of the next yeah, this is the next step. It doesn't specifically deal with the story of Kham Pachele, but I am really interested in thinking about um the relationship between um uh financial capital in the later apartheid period and um and mining in in regions like Lebo in particular um and i guess also this kind of where where this interest comes from is a mixture of what i was doing in Klele, but also insight into um a series of deals that were done in the later apartheid period and the kind of this Panic that a lot of uh, mining companies had with the new post-apartheid order look and give them access to minerals in the way that they uh, had uh, relied on so heavily in the the pre-apartheid period, rather. Um, And a series of panicked deals were done in the late 80s and early, early 90s to secure access to minerals. And I'm really interested in kind of mapping out uh, what those deals looked like, how, uh, as part of this effort to try and secure a, um, continued access to, uh, to minerals in the post-apartheid period, um, a number of elite um, black leaders from places like Le Bois were brought into some of those mining deals and what the effects of that were in the post-apartheid period for what financialized mining capital looked like.
0: Yeah. Great. Sounds like really important work. So we, we wish you luck in your future research. And um, we hope all the listeners here at the JH podcast will take a look at Dr. Phillips' article in issue one of the Journal of African History. Thank you so very much.
1: Thanks. Bye.